1862 novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, tells the story of Jean Valjean, arrested for stealing bread, spending 19 years in a harsh prison, who eventually escapes from prison and comes to the home of a bishop named uh, Bishop Muriel. And he comes to Bishop Muriel, who invites him in as a guest and feeds him dinner and gives him a place to stay for the night, shows him kindness uh, that's really unparalleled in Jean's life. And yet, after Muriel and his wife have gone to bed for the evening, Jean Valjean sneaks out into their living room and begins to uh, plunder their belongings and finds some valuable silver and starts to put it into his bag, and he's planning to escape with uh, these uh, valuables uh, that belong to the bishop. Well, Bishop Muriel, as it happens, hears the noise and comes out and says, is anybody there? And he comes across Jean Valjean in the midst of robbing him, and so he uh, knocks him out, basically knocks him unconscious, and and runs off uh, in the middle of the night with this bag of silver. Well, the next day, yes, Jean Valjean knocked the bishop out, took the silver, yes. He stole the silver from the bishop. Well, the next day, uh, the police find Jean Valjean with this bag of silver that doesn't belong to him, and they drag him back to Bishop Muriel. And they say, we found this man with a bag full of your silver, and he says that you gave it to him as a gift. And Bishop Muriel says, well, of course. But I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean, because you left the candlesticks. They're worth about 2,000 francs apiece. Why would you leave those behind? That's very foolish of you. And so he begins to load his bag with even more silver uh, uh, valuables. And the police are sort of stunned. And You mean you, he's telling us the truth? And he says, of course. And so he tells his wife to, to offer the men some wine. And so the police go into the home and leaves Jean Valjean standing there flabbergasted in the presence of Bishop Muriel, who has just absolutely floored him with this act of kindness and mercy. And then Bishop Muriel says this to Jean Valjean. He, there's a movie scene that I love where he, he pulls his hood down and he looks him square in the eye and he says, now don't forget. Don't ever forget. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And if you know the story of Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is never the same. He is utterly transformed by this inexplicable, absurd act of mercy and kindness toward him when he was deserving of imprisonment and punishment for this crime he's committed. He has instead been pardoned. He has been given mercy and a chance at a new life and a new start. In John chapter 8, we will meet a woman who finds herself in a very similar position uh, to the one that Jean Valjean was in, and the woman in John 8 will experience the same sort of astounding kindness and mercy. And I think 
that in this woman we can all see ourselves if we're willing to go there, if we're willing to look. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now technically the text begins in verse 53 of chapter 7. It's really like half of a sentence and then it uh, moves on. Now before we get into the story itself, we need to make an observation about this text in John. And this gets a little bit complicated. I don't want to open a can of worms, so to speak, but I feel like it needs to be addressed because it could be that your copy of the scriptures contains some note about these verses, or they might bracket these verses off. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 53, down through chapter 8, verse 11. And in fact, in the ESV Bible, it actually has a statement right above it that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 8.11. And then the text itself is bracketed out. It's in there, but it's in brackets. Does your Bible show something similar to that? Maybe there's a footnote that says this is not in the most common man- early manuscripts or something like that. So that might be a head scratcher. You might go, what in the world does that mean? So, Without getting into too much detail, there is a a discipline of study, a field of study called text criticism. And that sounds negative, but it's not. It really is just the discipline of finding and studying and comparing all of the copies of the Bible, the documents that compose the Bible throughout the centuries, and trying to get back to, as best we can, the earliest and most reliable reading of the Bible. So for example, there are like 5,800 some odd manuscript copies of the New Testament alone. Now some of those are very small. Some of them contain multiple books. They're kind of all over the place. And some of those date even to the late first century, which is contemporary with, uh, with the time of the apostles. And then many of them date a bit later, even up into, say, 10th and 11th century. So we have copies of the Scriptures, because remember, they couldn't just put a copy of John's Gospel on the copy machine and hit copy a 1,000 and distribute it. Somebody had to actually write out every word and then transmit that copy along, and then someone else would take a copy and make a copy, and that's how the Word of God was uh, dispensed, distributed, Uh, throughout the early centuries and all the way down to us today. Now, that sounds kind of scary. Like, how in the world do we know that what we have in our New Testament is actually reliable? But the truth is, the abundance of manuscript testimony that exists gives us, and the more copies that we have, the more confidence we gain in the reliability of the New Testament text that we have. Because the more you can compare and copy and find small discrepancies, the more you can confirm the reality and the reliability of what is actually there. And so there are some of these manuscript copies that were very early, and generally they are regarded as the more reliable because they were closer to the time of their actual composition during the first century. And when it comes to this text, verse 753 down through 811, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of John's gospel don't contain this story. 
And the story doesn't really start showing up in copies of John's Gospel until probably about the 9th or 10th century. So, it is likely that these verses were not written by the Apostle John. Now, lest we panic, most New Testament scholars and text critics do believe that this story is authentic. In other words, this really happened during the life and ministry of Jesus, but we just don't know who actually wrote it and where it really belonged. And so it sort of found various homes. In some manuscripts, it's in different places in John's Gospel. In at least one manuscript, it's actually in Luke's Gospel. The same verses verbatim, just in a different place. And so it's kind of been attached to some different spots in these gospel accounts. Nevertheless, it does seem to have the ring of truth. It does seem to reflect the, the teaching and the character of Jesus and of the Pharisees who we're going to see as, a, as a chief characters in this story as well. And so there's no reason for us to think this didn't happen. We think it probably did happen, just probably wasn't actually John who wrote about it. So if that opens a whole bunch of questions and a can of worms, I'd be glad to talk with you more about that individually later on or give you some resources that you can follow up with. But I don't think there's any reason to be alarmed or to think that the New Testament is suddenly unreliable uh, because of this chunk of text that doesn't seem to have actually been in John's gospel from the beginning. So we will proceed today as though this is true scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, and handed down to his people. And I trust that we will see the glory and grace of Jesus Christ shining as bright as ever as we consider this story today. So let's get to the story. Verse 2, actually verse 53 of chapter 7 tells us, They went each to his own house. So everybody dispersed from where they had been, and went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was a custom of Jesus. He was in the habit of seeking solitude, of finding quiet places to be alone with his Father, to pray, to rest, to refresh and restore his spirit. And the Mount Mount of Olives was a place that he went to commonly when he was in uh, Judea, in the Jerusalem area. So he's gone to the Mount of Olives, And then early the next morning, look at verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus has gone back into the temple, which is where people go to worship, right? This is church. The people have come to the temple and Jesus sits down, which is the posture that a rabbi takes when he's teaching the law of God, when he's teaching God's word. So he he sits down, And the people have come to him, and they are learning from him and being taught by him. So have in your mind, this is like kind of like a Sunday morning situation. We're in the temple, we're in the worship space, Jesus is teaching, and we are listening. That is the the setting into which these uh, very interesting uh, circumstances will unfold. So look at verse 3 and 4. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
So adultery is simply a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. It's just that plain. And God's law is very clear on how God thinks about adultery. And in fact, under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the penalty for adultery was death. If one was found to be in an adulterous relationship, he or she, both of them, were to be put to death. Leviticus 20 verse 10 tells us that. Deuteronomy 22, 22 tells us that. So God's thoughts about adultery are very clear. And his penalty, his prescribed penalty for the nation of Israel under the law at that time was death. So the scribes and Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus who has been caught in the act of adultery and is thus under the law punishable by death. That is the situation that she is in. Now, there's a question that this raises. I wonder if your mind has already gone there. Why did they only bring the woman? Why would they only bring the woman? Because if she was caught in the act of adultery, then the other party was there. They let him go. Now, I think that tells us a couple of things. I think, first of all, it is a reflection probably of that culture and that day and time where there was just a plain double standard, where women were held to a higher standard and were held more accountable for sins than perhaps men were, and probably even more so with sins of a sexual nature. And so the woman is dragged before not just Jesus, this rabbi, but also this crowd, like somebody drug her into the middle of a church service, all right? And she's been caught in the act. Now, we need to be careful that we not just finger wag at this culture and go, man, how backwards are they? Because I think we can be guilty of the very same kind of double standard if we're not careful. We can be harsher to women and expect more of women and let women get away with less than we uh, might let a man in our same culture and in the same situation get away with. And so I do think we need to be careful about that because sin is sin. And, a person, and if a person is guilty of sin, then he's guilty before God in exactly the same way. So if these Pharisees and scribes were interested in justice, they would have drugged two people before Jesus today, and not just the woman. And that leads me to the second point to make about that. I think we see here that the motives of the Pharisees and the scribes are not exactly all that pure. Because you see, these are the law keepers. The scribes are the theologians of the day, and the Pharisees are this zealous kind of morality police almost. They're making sure that people don't step out of line. And when someone steps out of line, they're going, to bring it, they're going to bring it up. They're going to confront it, right? So they come to Jesus as though they are deeply offended that this woman has sinned against God and she should be punished. But I think, again, the fact that they only bring the woman and the man is anonymous and unseen in this shows us they're not really all that interested in upholding God's law. And in fact, the writer of these verses tells us very plainly uh, in verse 6 that they said this to test him, that is to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
And so when they bring the woman to Jesus, they remind him of the law. This woman was caught in adultery. Look at verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say? And so their hope is to trap him. That he will be stuck between a rock and a hard place, proverbially speaking. That there will be no right decision to make here. Because think about it. The law of Moses was given by God. Therefore, that's God's law. And God's law for this people at this time required someone caught in adultery to be put to death. So if Jesus says, let's just let her go. Don't worry about it. Let's just, let's just wipe this under the rug and you don't have to stone her. Then he's essentially saying, I don't care about God's law. And what rabbi, what Jewish rabbi can say, I don't care about God's law and maintain his position or have anybody listen to him or take him seriously? And in fact, that would be further grounds in their minds of blasphemy and a charge worthy of putting him to death, which is what they're trying to do. They've been trying to do that all along. So if he says, don't stone her, then he has cast God's law aside and said God's holiness doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. On the other hand, if he says, okay, let's stone her right here, there's two things that might happen. First of all, remember that Jerusalem and and all of Israel at this time is under Roman occupation. And so the Roman government is really the authority over the affairs of the Jews at this time. And in matters of capital punishment, in crimes that were to be punishable by death, the Romans actually reserved the right to dispense justice and to have their courts the ones that make those determinations. And in fact, that is why Jesus eventually will be tried by a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and executed by Roman soldiers, because Romans are the ones who carry out the death penalty. That's their jurisdiction. And so if Jesus says, let's stone her now, then he's also kind of gone against Rome, right? He's bucking the Roman authority there, which is not going to go over well with them either. So he's, he's either going to anger the Jewish leadership by saying, God's law doesn't matter, let's not stone her, or he's going to anger the Roman authorities by putting someone to death without deferring to their jurisdiction. And you also have to think about his reputation with the crowd. Because Jesus to this point has this reputation of being a healer and, and, and merciful and a friend of sinners. And if this woman, in the presence of all, is condemned to death at his word, then he loses something of his reputation with people about being merciful and being a friend of sinners. So Jesus is in this sticky place, right? And the, the, the Pharisees say to him, so what do you say? And I wonder what you would say. I wonder what would be in your heart, in my heart, in this situation. What's your reflex? What's your instinct? Is your instinct to brush it aside, to take the, the path of mercy, to say, not a big deal, let's let it go? Or is your instinct to say, she ought to pay for what she did. She wrecked somebody's home. She ought to bear the consequences of that all the way. The law says kill her. 
We should kill her. I wonder if we were standing in that place, living in that culture, if we would have an instinct to judge and condemn or if we would have an instinct to forgive and extend mercy. So let's see what Jesus does in verse 6. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Here's what he does. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us that. I'm not sure what he's writing in the sand. I don't know if he's just buying time for himself to think of something. I doubt it. That doesn't seem like Jesus. Jesus is usually pretty good with an on-the-spot kind of a response to these traps. So I doubt that he's just buying time, but I'm not sure, and no one really knows, what he is writing. Now, there have been various theories proposed, speculations, just guessing. I wonder what Jesus is writing here. Some have said maybe Jesus is writing uh, the Old Testament law, you know, a verse from the Old Testament in the sand about judgment or about mercy. Some have said maybe he's writing in the sand the names of women that he knows these Pharisees themselves have been adulterous with. Now, that's imaginative and kind of interesting to think about. We certainly cannot confirm that that's what he's doing. But whatever the case, he's writing in the sand, and then he stands up, and he says to them these well-known words, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So he continued his sand writing after he delivers this one-line grenade, if you will. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is really brilliant. This is really clever. Now, he doesn't negate the law of Moses, nor does he directly circumvent the Romans and like execute justice without deferring to the Romans. He sort of puts it back in their court. Oh, you think she should be stoned? Okay, well, then let the one among you without sin be the first one to cast the stone. He does not make the pronouncement. He sort of puts it back on them, and the burden is back on the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, of course, if we're taking this statement literally, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, the only person that's without sin is Jesus himself. So he is the only person that truly qualifies for that, uh, for that requirement. So perfection was never a requirement of the law. God didn't expect people to be perfect. And in fact, if that were the case, then no one could ever cast any judgment on any sin because nobody is without sin. So if the principle here is, unless you're sinless, you can't judge someone else's sin at all, then the whole thing is nullified. All of God's law is useless because it's all about sin and how to confront it and to keep the people pure and clean before God. And so if you have to be sinless in order to judge sin in any way, then God's law is gone and that doesn't make sense. So I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. But here's another requirement of the law. The law required that the person bringing the accusation, in other words, the one who had caught the offender, had to have a direct role in dispensing the justice. 
So if somebody found a person who had committed adultery and brought them before a jury, if you will, and said, we found this person committing adultery, then the law actually required that that person would take part and maybe even throw the first of the stones. And so Jesus is kind of just alluding back to this law. Let the one who is without sin among you, maybe just innocent in this situation, be the first one to cast a stone. But he states it in a broad enough way that the implications go deeper. Jesus knew that their hearts were not right. He knew that their motives were not noble in catching this woman in adultery and that they're not really interested in upholding God's law or doing justice. And so when he puts the ball back in their court, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. When he puts the ball back in their court, insisting that they decide who among them had sincere God-honoring intentions in their hearts, he essentially disarms them. He pulls the ammo right out of their guns, so to speak, and they have no weapon left to use. Aren't we like this sometimes? Aren't we quick to to condemn the sins of others and to look down our noses at other people while kind of giving ourselves a free pass for the sins in our own lives? It's a lot easier for us to see someone else's sin than it is for us to see someone to see our own sin. We can be blind to our own faults, all the while labeling others as sinners of various kinds. So we need to be careful not to be like these Pharisees and just look for opportunities to judge people, condemn people, even use people for the, their own conceit, puffing themselves up. So Jesus puts the ball back in their court. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the sand. And whatever it is he's writing, and whatever, however those words sat with his audience, the threat immediately dissipates. Look in verse 8. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they being the scribes and the Pharisees, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They left. They realized they didn't have a stone to throw, to use a pun. They had no leg to stand on. They had no argument to make. They had no plea because they knew that their hearts were not clean. They knew that their hearts were not pure. And I think the detail of the older ones leaving first is kind of interesting too. Why would the older ones leave first? Could be they've got more sin to remember. They've got more years of sinning that come readily to their minds when Jesus kind of puts that in their face. It may be that some wisdom has come with the years, and so they realize more quickly than the younger ones, we lost this. We have nothing left to do. And so one by one, they walk away. It seems that they were even convicted by their own consciences. Because if they didn't care whether they had sin in their hearts or not, they would have just gone right ahead with fulfilling the law and stoning this woman. But they walk away one by one. And so here's an ironic and tragic situation. 
in the presence of Jesus Christ, they are convicted of sin. And instead of going toward Jesus, instead of coming to Him and confessing and saying, would you forgive me? They walk away. They walk away from Jesus with their conviction. The precise opposite of what they should do. And that was the problem with the Pharisees all along. They were not willing to look at their own sin. They were not willing to be honest with themselves about their unrighteousness and their hypocrisy and their arrogance and the way that they put burdens on others and used people like this woman in John chapter 8. They were unwilling to reflect on their own hearts. And once again, we see a caution for ourselves. We've got to be willing to look at our own hearts. We've got to be willing to examine ourselves to see whether there be wrong ways and sinful ways in us. We need to be willing to ask the Lord to show us, will you teach me about sin in my heart and judgment in my heart and unrighteousness? Because he'll show you. If you ask him to show you, he will. And it's not easy. It's not pleasant to be made aware of pride and selfishness and impatience and anger and things that reside in your heart. It's not pleasant. But until we know that it's there and we're honest about the fact that it's there, we will never come to Jesus with our handful of sin and say, will you take this mess from me and make me new again? We have to be willing to look at ourselves. And so once again, let's not fall into that trap of blindness to our own sin and a quickness to see the sins of others. So they've all left. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus was left alone with just the woman standing before him. Because remember, he's crouched down, drawing in the sand. And the woman is standing. Jesus stood up, verse 10, and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, first of all, woman is not disrespectful. It sounds harsh to our ears, but in that in that day, it was really just a term of respect. In fact, Jesus called his own mother woman on occasion. We saw that back in John chapter 2. Not, not a disrespectful dig. It was really a, a, a term of, of respect. So he says, woman, where are they? I love the way that the New Living Translation does this verse, and it says, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Where did they go? Has no one condemned you? In verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. Lord there can mean sir or master. So I don't know if she recognizes who Jesus is and uses Lord in this way of really seeing him as the, the king and her savior, or if she's just, it's just a respectful, no, sir, no one is there, sir. I'm not sure. But she says, there, there's no one. There's no one that condemns me. And Jesus says, this is so beautiful, listen to this, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Oh, that's mercy. Oh, that is unmerited kindness and pardon. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. 
You know what I mean? You got something coming to you, and instead, it doesn't happen. It doesn't come. That's mercy. Jesus says to her, I'm not going to condemn you either. I don't condemn you. That is so precious. The gift of mercy from Jesus is so precious to sinners like us because we deserve punishment. Because every one of us, whether we've committed adultery or not, we've all broken God's law. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve death, not just physically, not just now, but eternal separation from God. Eternal death and punishment. That's what is on us. John the Baptist said in John 3.36 that whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. That is a terrifying place to stand. That is a terrifying place to be with God's wrath. The holy, righteous, just God burning in anger toward my sin and rebellion. And judgment coming. Right judgment coming. That is a terrifying place to be. And that is the situation this woman was in. She was in a very vulnerable place. She's been caught in the act of adultery. There's no question about her guilt. She's been dragged before this rabbi who surely is going to uphold the law of God or he's no rabbi at all. So she knows what's coming. Death is coming her way. And so when Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you either. You imagine the relief, the shock, the peace that came with that pronouncement. Neither do I condemn you. Praise God for His offer of mercy to sinners. For His extending of forgiveness to all of us who will simply trust in Jesus, who will simply see in Him the only sinless life and the death that satisfied all of God's wrath against our sin and the new life, the resurrection life that defeated death and hell forever. Neither do I condemn you. Mercy. But that's not all He said. The second half of His sentence is, go, and from now on, sin no more. There's exhortation here. There's holiness here. That classic dilemma, is God just and holy and righteous? Or is God loving and merciful and compassionate? He's all of that. Of course. How can that all exist together? I don't know. He's God. He can do it. He is it. I don't know how that all fits together, how that all works, but God is holy and just and righteous and punishes sins, and God is patient and merciful and compassionate towards sinners. And we see both of those reflected in this response of Jesus. I don't condemn you. That's mercy. Now go and sin no more. There's holiness. There's moral purity. There's the law of God, the commands of God that still matter. It still means something to live holy, to be pure, and to strive for holiness 
uh, in our relationship with God. But don't get the order mixed up. He didn't say, go and sin no more, and I won't condemn you. The mercy came before the exhortation. The pardon came before the command. I don't condemn you for your sin. Now, sin no more. Be free. Be free to obey. That's true freedom. True freedom is recognizing that because Jesus has pardoned my sin, I can obey God now without the fear of being judged and condemned for my failings. When I mess up, when I miss the mark, when I don't uphold God's commands, which is going to happen, happens all the time, every day, when I mess up, I've got that mercy to fall back on. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. You're not condemned for your sin. Now, go and sin no more. Praise God. Mercy and holiness, they work together. We've got to see the mercy and experience the mercy of forgiveness for our sins before we can truly follow Christ in obedience. To conclude, I think we need to to ask ourselves, how, how is Jesus able to just forgive her sin? Because God's law is still important. And in this time, before cross and resurrection and all that has happened, they're really still, the people of God are still living under that law. So how can Jesus just say, I don't condemn you? How can he do that? How does he have the right to do that? How does he have the authority to do that? Well, first of all, Jesus, as he has been telling us over and over throughout John's gospel, is the son of God. If anyone has the authority to set aside a commandment, it's surely God himself. But beyond that, he's not merely being casual or willy-nilly with God's law and going, this part doesn't matter that much. Jesus knows, even as he offers this pardon, I don't condemn you either. Jesus knows that in about six months, he's going to hang on a cross for her adultery. Jesus can pardon her sin because he knows he is going to bear it. So what he's saying to this woman when he says, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more, he is saying, I'm going to take care of this. You don't have to die. You don't have to be stoned in judgment for your sin because I'm going to take the judgment. I am going to take God's anger against your adultery upon myself. And so even before the cross has happened, Jesus sees it coming. Jesus knows that is where he's headed. And he is able to say, I will take care of it. That's what Jesus says to each one of us today. The invitation to come to Jesus Christ in faith is this. If you will come to him with your sin and go, this is what I have, it's a mess, it's broken, it's ugly, 
I've made a mess not just of my own life, but the lives of others. It is ugly. If you'll just take that to him, Jesus says, I'll take care of that for you. And in fact, he says, I already took care of that. A couple thousand years ago, I hung on a cross in Jerusalem for sinners like you. I took your sin upon myself. Praise God for his mercy. Have you trusted him? Have you trusted in Jesus for this forgiveness? Have you come to him in faith? Simply offered him your mess and said, Jesus, will you take care of this for me? And believed in your heart that Jesus' life and death and resurrection was enough to earn you a relationship with God and a standing before God that can never be undone or removed? Have you trusted in him? If not, it's time. It's time to do that. It's time to come to him in repentance and in faith and say, Jesus, will you take care of this for me? And hear the words of Jesus. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more.